If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Romans chapter 6 and 7. If not, uh, you can find this passage printed on page 11 of your worship guide. I will read verse 14 from chapter 6 and then pick up with the first six verses of chapter 7. And as I go to read, I would remind you that this is indeed the word of the living God, the creator of all things, and that is a precious life-giving gift, and I pray that we all will receive it as such this morning. I do invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Romans six fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then down to chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're making our way through the book of Romans. Last week, we heard Colin's excellent sermon on the last part of Romans chapter 6, and he began by showing us that chapter 6, and even into chapter 7, is really asking the question, who is your Lord, or who is your master? Who do you obey? Who do you submit to? And as we continue into chapter 7, we might add a question to that, and that is this, why? Why do you obey God, or why do you not obey God? In God's eyes, in his judgment, Why you do something is just as important as what you do. So in the eyes of God, the same outward act, for example, obeying your parents when they tell you to clean your room, or maybe gathering for worship, or giving a tithe to the church, or maybe being kind to someone, sharing a toy, or a meal, or helping someone move. In the eyes of God, the same outward act can be for one, a source of condemnation, and for another, a source of commendation. The Bible says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said that even the virtues of unbelievers are sin. Let me give you a, a, a completely imaginary scenario that might help us understand this. And I just want to make clear, this is not an event that has happened in my home. This is totally made up. It could have happened when I was a teenager. I could be the one in this, but it's a made up scenario. But imagine that your son wants to have some friends come over on a Friday night, 
and watch the March Madness basketball games and then stay overnight so that they can go play basketball together on a Saturday morning. And you, the father, say, yes, you can do that, but you have to clean up the kitchen, the mess that you'll make on Friday night before you go to bed if your friends are going to stay over and you're going to play basketball in the morning. So you agree to that. And then he has his friends over, they enjoy watching the games, and they're worn out, they're ready to go to bed, and he has forgotten to clean up the mess that they have made. And you remind him. And in that moment, he's not so happy to be reminded. But he knows that if he doesn't do this, he's not going to be able to have his friends stay over or enjoy playing basketball together with them in the morning. And so, in the midst of his anger, he goes ahead and he does what you told him to do. He outwardly obeys. But why does he do it? Not because he loves the Father, not because he trusts the Father, but because he wants to be with his friends. He wants to be able to play basketball with them. The outward act may be obedience, but it's not from love. He obeys to get what he wants. And now, it doesn't even have to be that obvious. Suppose that he's favorite team won the game that night and he's in a great mood and so he cleans the kitchen with joy but not the joy of pleasing his father joy in his team's win joy that he gets to play basketball in the morning the the obedience is centered around himself not around his father and so that's why another pastor would say that all human virtue apart from faith in christ is depravity it actually brings judgment condemnation from God because it's not from a heart of love to the Heavenly Father, even if the outward behavior conforms to God's law. Now, that's a hard word. That's hard for us to accept. You might think, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I can accept that. But if our focus is only on the outward behavior and in how what we do might impact others as opposed to the inner heart before a holy God, we will fail to see the extent of our sin. We'll fail to see the depth of our need for a Savior, and we'll also fail to see the greatness of Jesus, the depth of his grace and his glory. So in reality, the more that you see the depth of your own sin and your own need, the more you will rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus died for your sin, for all of it. He shed his own blood to forgive you, to forgive you all the way down to the depths of your motives. And friend, you can be forgiven today. Forgiven of even of those heart sins. You can be saved, you can be transformed. It can be true of you that your sins are remembered no more. And your good deeds, though stained with impure motives, can be washed in the blood of Jesus and made acceptable to God. He can give you a new heart with new desires, new motives to love and trust your heavenly father. Now we've been looking at Romans. Chapters 5, chapter 6 have been teaching us about our union with Jesus Christ. We have learned that everyone is either in Adam, the first created man. Everyone is either united to Adam or they are in Christ, united to Christ. We have seen that everyone is born united to Adam, united to him in his sin and his guilt and his condemnation. But we, all, we have also seen that we can be born again. 
We can be united to Christ in forgiveness and righteousness and justification. Now we come to Romans chapter 7. And we're still learning what it means to be united to Christ. But here, Paul also talks to us about the believer's relationship with the law of God. How can we obey God in a way that is pleasing to him? And the answer to that question, why do we obey God? How can we obey God in a way that is pleasing to him? The answer to that question flows from our union with Jesus Christ. And this is what we see in the opening to chapter 7. Union with Christ in his death means that the believer has died to the law so that you may belong to the risen Christ in order that you may bear fruit for God. You have died to the law in order that you may belong to the risen Christ in order that you may bear fruit for God. Now the first six verses of chapter 7 divide fairly Nicely for us this morning, we see uh, the principle Paul makes and an illustration in verses 1 through 3. And then we see the connection and the result in verses 4 through 6. So that's how we'll look at the passage today. First, the principle and the illustration. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul gives us a general principle, which he then illustrates in verses 2 through 3. And this is all going back to what he said in chapter 6, verse 14. That's why we read it, included it this morning. In that verse, he says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, how is it that we are not under law? He answers this in chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. So pause for a moment. What law is Paul referring to? Here he is referring to God's law. The Old Testament law, which is summed up for us in the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now Paul gives us this principle about the law. He says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So when you are alive, you are bound to obey. The law rules over you. You are obligated to submit to the law. But death severs that bond, that obligation, that dominion. That makes sense, right? When you are dead, you can't be expected to obey the law. You can't do anything. So the principle is this. Death releases from being bound to the law. And now Paul uses a simple illustration from marriage to help us understand this principle. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So it's very clear what Paul is saying. When two people get married, they are bound to remain married until death. If a wife lives with another man while her husband is still alive, she has broken God's law and she is an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. She's no longer bound. And so now she is free to marry another. And if she does, she is not an adulteress. So think of it. The same outward act. Marrying another man. In one case, 
It is a violation of God's law and leads to condemnation. But in another case, she's free from that law, no condemnation. What makes the difference? Death. Death has freed her from the law. This is the principle he wants us to grasp. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Death releases from this binding. Now hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. I do want to take just a brief moment to say a few words about marriage. Now this passage is not primarily about marriage. It's not the main point. But we can learn some principles. And the main clear one is this. That God ordained, he created marriage to be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. When Amy and I were preparing for our marriage, uh, I remember one of the pastors counseling us in this way. He, He was trying to communicate to us the idea that divorce is not an option. And he said, don't even talk about it. You might even want to consider not even saying the word. It's not on the table. Don't even consider it. And in general, I took that as good counsel. Because what was he doing? He was trying to hold up before us to emphasize the permanence of marriage. He wanted to emphasize God's good design. Especially in the midst of a world, even those within the church, that often reject this design. And a world where... No fault divorce has been embraced. So this is the main principle. God is the one who ordained and created marriage to be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. And so, beloved, if you have entered into a marriage or you're considering entering into a marriage, you enter into that marriage with that mindset, that commitment. When a woman says yes to one man in marriage, she is saying no to every other man forever. When a man says yes to one woman in marriage, he is saying no to every other woman forever. Now, one of the reasons for this is because God created marriage to be a reflection of his covenant commitment to his bride, the church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, and we know that Christ will never forsake his bride, the church. He has made a covenant with us and he will never break that covenant. And so our marriages are designed to image or to reflect that truth, to tell the truth about that. There are other principles about marriage that we learn in God's word, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which tells believers to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So for believers, we are instructed to only marry in the Lord. This means women only marry men who love Jesus. And men only marry women who love Jesus. But here's the main principle. Marriage is to be seen as permanent. That's why when you get married and you take the vow, you should say, or you may have said, for as long as we both shall live, or till death do us part. Now we do see another principle in this passage, Romans chapter 7. It's this, divorce and remarriage in the eyes of the Lord is adultery. That's the general biblical principle. Now there are exceptions. We see just one in this passage, and that is death. Death frees you from that bound. That's the only exception that's mentioned here in Romans chapter 7. 
That doesn't mean that's the only exception there is in God's word. We do find others. Jesus mentions one in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Adultery. Paul adds another in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now our, our church, our denomination, we believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith is an excellent summary of what the scriptures teach. And so in that document, chapter 24, section 6, six it acknowledges both of these exceptions. It says nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Now, today there's a lot of discussion in the church and even in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, about what willful desertion means. And we are coming to understand from our studies of the scriptures that willful desertion can include cases of abuse, physical violence, but even beyond that, spiritual, emotional, financial, psychological oppression and control. These can be forms of willful desertion, even when the spouse may be physically present. And we know that these can be very difficult matters. And we want to communicate with you that if you are in danger in your marriage, whether physically or otherwise, we do want to help. And we do have people, men and women, safe people here at Proclamation that you can talk to. Now, stepping aside from the issue of abuse for a moment, I'm not talking about abuse right now. All marriages are hard at times. All marriages experience conflict. That's to be expected when two sinners come together and get married. You don't all of a sudden cease being sinning. So it's expected that there's hardship, there's conflict in marriage. But remember that principle. God's design is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. But all marriages need help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, the help of his word, the help of his church. We might need the help of friends or counselors. And so if you're in the midst of a marriage, I'm not talking about abuse right now, but if you're in the midst of a marriage that is experiencing conflict and it's difficult for you, we also want to help you, to help one another. Because our aim, our desire, is to glorify God in our marriages. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. So that's a brief sidebar on marriage. It may have raised more questions than answers, perhaps more objections than agreement. I'd be glad to follow up with you and talk on on a personal level on that and perhaps have a a sermon series on that topic another time. But, But remember the main general principle. Marriage is designed by God to be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. But if your spouse dies, you are free to then remarry. Now, Paul uses that illustration to support his main principle about the believer's relationship to the law of God. And this is the principle. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Death releases from that obligation, that binding. That's the principle and the illustration. Now, let's move on to the connection and the result. Paul makes this in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to, whom, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So beloved, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now how does that happen? What does that mean? 
how do you die to the law? Paul says you have died to the law through the body of Christ. He's talking about the physical human body of Christ being put to death on the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, when he was crucified for the sins of his people, all who are in Christ died with him. We were crucified with Christ. So to be united with Christ in his death means that when he died, we also in a very real way died with him. So beloved, you have died to sin. You have died to the condemnation of sin. You have died to the dominion of sin. And you have died to the law, to the dominion of the law over your life. Paul says, sin no longer has dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. So this connection that Paul is making with his marriage illustration is how we are released from the law. Now, I really like his illustration because it doesn't line up perfectly. It makes me feel much better as a preacher because often we're trying to communicate difficult concepts and we come up with an illustration and it inevitably breaks down at some point. And that's what we see a little bit here. But here we're not meant to look for a one-to-one correspondence in the illustration. We're meant to see the main idea. And Paul is saying this. When we are united with Christ in his death, there is a death which releases us from the bond to the law just as decisively as the death of the husband in the illustration. And that death is our death to the law in the death of Christ. It's our union with Christ in his death that has definitively dissolved, broken once for all time, our bond to the law. And we need this to happen in our lives, beloved. Because as long as the law governs us, as long as it holds us captive, we have no possibility of release to the bondage of sin. The only way out is to be released or freed from the law. And the only way that that can happen is through death. And the only way that can happen is through our union with Christ and his death. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who could meet all the law's demands. And because Christ is the only one who could suffer the curse, the punishment due to lawbreakers like us in a way that would result in life and justification rather than in death and condemnation. When we are united with Christ in his death, all the virtue of his death in meeting the claims of the law becomes ours. And we are now free from the dominion and the power of sin to which the law had enslaved us. So we go back to Galatians again. Remember, Galatians is like a mini Romans. So Galatians chapter 3. Here, this is what Paul says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So beloved, our union with Christ in his death 
has fundamentally changed our relationship with the law forever. Sin no longer has dominion over us because we are no longer under the law. We are now under grace. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we have died to the law? So we see how we died to the law. It was in the death of Christ. But now what does that mean? How does that impact our lives? It means that we are dead to the law as a means of salvation. We cannot earn our way or obey our way in, and we don't have to. Christ has obeyed for us. It also means that we are dead to the law as a means of condemnation and punishment. Once we are alive in Christ, our law-breaking cannot keep us out of God's kingdom because Christ has been punished for us. So now, having died to the law, we are free to serve God, to serve one another in and through love. We are free from pride, pride in our obedience to the law, and we are free from despair, despair in our disobedience to the law. We don't have to obey the law to earn favor, and we don't have to obey the law to avoid punishment. We want to obey God's law because we love him who first loved us, because we trust him, because we are thankful for so great a salvation. So, beloved, we have died to the law as a way of salvation and as a way of judgment, but not as a pattern for life. We have died to the law so that we may belong to another. So, in essence, this is what Paul is saying. Beloved, you are no longer married to the law. You are now married to Jesus Christ. You belong to to Jesus, to him who has been raised from the dead. What a great image this is for us. What a great truth this is. We are now married to Christ. To be in Christ, to be a believer, a Christian, is to be loved by Jesus. It's to be chosen by Jesus and to love him in return. It is to forsake all others and to love him. We are now saying yes to Jesus. He is our Lord. He is the one that we give all of our allegiance to. And we are saying no to all other gods, all other idols. He alone is Lord. And so no area of our life is now unaffected. You belong to Jesus. You have entered into a legal yet very personal relationship that is as comprehensive as marriage. You know, when you are married to someone, no part of your life then is separate or unaffected by that new relationship. And that is true with us and Jesus. So what does it mean to belong to the risen Christ? It means, beloved, you are not your own. The law is not your Lord. Sin is not your Lord. Death is not your Lord. These things are no longer the controlling power in your life. Jesus is now your Lord. He reigns in you and over you and for you. Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus who is coming again for you. Jesus, the friend of sinners. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. Jesus who willingly laid down his life for you. He is the one who is now your Lord. 
and you are now bound to him. And this marriage bond that cannot ever be severed. So you obey him. You submit your life to him in response to his perfect and wise and good and sacrificial and never-ending steadfast love. What does it mean to belong to the risen Christ? It means, beloved, that you have comfort in both life and in death. This is the confession of faith that we have been using this month. And in a few moments, we'll confess together Heidelberg Catechism question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. Well, if I'm not my own, whose am I? Who do I belong to? I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things without exception, must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of not death or condemnation. He assures me of eternal life and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's good, beloved. We might want to memorize that question and answer. There's a reason God's people are saying it over and over and over again for hundreds of years. That is our comfort in life and in death. And what do you see there at the end? That being freed from the law is not the end. That's not the goal. It's designed to lead us somewhere, to do something, to have a positive result. We now bear fruit for God. We live for Jesus. Because our union with Christ is not only a union with his death, It's a union with his resurrection. And you're never to separate those two. Yes, we died with Christ, but that's only part of a great whole. Yes, we died with Christ, and we were also raised with Christ to a newness of life. So if you have your Bibles, you can look back in Romans chapter 6 to verse 8 and be reminded that this is what Paul said there. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And beloved, he lives that life in us. Now we live that life also. Christ lives in us. Back to chapter 7 verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, how do we do that? How do we bear fruit for God? Look at verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, now Paul's talking about our life before Christ, when we were dead in Adam, not alive in Christ. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's the old life. That's the in Adam you. 
That's the life that has been crucified with Christ and is no more. So now verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Beloved, we died to that old way. And now we can and we will bear fruit for God. Why? Not because we're really good at obeying. We're not. We're not. Some of you need to know you're not as good at obeying as you think you are. And others of you need to know you're better at obeying than you think you are. Because really, our obedience is tied up with Christ. We died to that old way, and now we can and we will bear fruit for God. Why? Because we're no longer held captive to the law. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. When we were under the dominion of sin, we could never obey the law in a way that would bring glory to God, in a way that would bear fruit for God, but only in a way that would bear fruit for death. You realize that? Apart from Christ, every good work you do brings you condemnation. It brings fruit for death. But now, Having died to the law and being raised with Christ, we bear fruit for God because we serve in the new way of the Spirit, because we have the resurrected Christ living in us, because, as the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah tell us, not only has God cleansed us from all our sin through the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that he has forgiven our iniquity and remembered it no more. Not only that, but he has also removed our dead heart, that heart that was enslaved to sin and death and the law that could only incur condemnation. He has taken that out and he has given us a new heart, a new spirit, his own Holy Spirit that can now only receive commendation and favor and love. And God has put his law on our hearts. It's written on our hearts now. So beloved, if if you know Jesus, there is a longing within you. As faint as it may be at times, but there is that longing. You want to obey. You trust your heavenly father. You love him and you are now able to obey him because he will cause you to do so. He'll cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And since we belong to the one who's been raised from the dead, we too will rise and dwell in his land, in his kingdom, and be his people, and he'll be our God forever. Hallelujah, amen. Amen. Now think of it this way. How do we bear fruit for God? One pastor used this illustration. He said that when he was a child, a young child, he loved his mom, and her birthday was coming up, and he wanted to give a gift to her. But he had no resources. He didn't have a job, no money. So what is he going to do? Where is he going to come up with a gift? So he thinks, oh, my my mom really loves these scissors of hers. So he takes her scissors, and he wraps them up, and he sets them aside for a couple of days. And the days of her birthday comes, and, and he hands her this nicely wrapped gift, and she opens it up, and she says, oh, I was wondering where my scissors were. <laughs> you know, that's, that is like our obedience to God. We give to him what is already his. And he rejoices in it. This obedience, this fruit that we give, is obedience that he has already performed. He's already worked it in us. So he receives the glory. He's pleased with that obedience because it is in and through Christ. 
It is fruit from God and fruit for God. So you might be thinking earlier, well, my outward acts are always stained with motives that are impure. Now, how can I ever have a pure motive? I'm doing this because I trust the Lord, because I love the Lord, because I want to honor and obey him. But the only way those motives can be purified is through Christ, the blood of Christ. So why do you now obey? Well, here in Romans 7, Paul gives us the ultimate answer as to why Christians obey God. And he's been building this. We obey God because we are not under law, but under grace. Under law, we could not obey God for his glory. Under grace, we do. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. We are under the dominion of grace, the reign of grace. We're no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. We belong to Jesus. We're united with Jesus in his life. And so we are dead to sin and alive to God. We have a newness of life. So listen, beloved. We do not obey to be saved. And we do not obey to avoid condemnation. We don't obey to get God to like us. And we don't obey to keep him from punishing us. We now obey out of love. He loves us. And we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command. Romans 7, Paul's talking about our relationship to the law. What does the law do? The law drives us to the gospel to show us our need. It drives us to the gospel to show us how we can be saved through Christ. It drives us to the gospel to show us the greatness of the glory and the grace of Jesus. And then what does the gospel do? It sends us back to the law to show us how to live once we are saved. To show us how we now can live a life that brings glory to God. To how we can offer our life as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'm going to turn back to John Bunyan once again. He has a nice little poem about this. Maybe you've heard it before. He says, run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Beloved, you have died to the law. Why? So that you may belong to the risen Christ. Remember that, beloved. Remember whose you are. You belong to Christ. He has made you his own. Why? In order that you may bear fruit for God. May God work in us what is pleasing in his sight for his glory and our eternal joy. Amen.